Welcome to episode 212 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. There are a few times throughout the year when there's a natural inclination to consider the past year and look forward to the year ahead. September is definitely one of those times for me. No matter how long it's been since I was in school, the shifting of seasons as we head into fall in the Northern Hemisphere feels like the beginning of the school year. It's also the month we celebrate Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which has cultural significance for me even as a non-religious person. Add to all that, This week, I celebrate my 46th revolution around the sun. To say that this last year did not go as expected is a major understatement. Thinking back on all the twists and turns in my life and my business, I'm reminded of a memory from when I was 20 years old in 1994. My dad had read an article that said that 20-year-olds would have four careers before they were 40 and that some of those careers did not yet exist. What I internalized from that conversation was that I needed to have transferable skills, flexibility, and a willingness to say yes to new experiences. From 20 to 40, I went from being a student organizer to an office manager to a special events manager to working with major donors. At 40, I took a leap, left my nonprofit career, and focused on my business as a professional speaker. Since then, I've launched a podcast, became an author, did a TEDx, and established myself as a networking expert. When I was 20, I could not have fathomed how true it would be that new industries and new technologies would sprout up at a faster and faster pace over the next two decades. A year ago, I thought I was finally settling in for a long career as a professional speaker, but 2020 had other ideas. I leaned into my transferable skills, tried to remain flexible, and said yes to new experiences, which quickly led to being recognized as an industry expert in the field of digital event design. Now, I'm regularly interviewed about how to help presenters and meeting professionals design more engaging online experiences. Now, as a virtual event design consultant and Zoom producer, I get to help my clients overcome their tech angst so they can share their message. Your challenge for this week, identify your transferable soft and hard skills so you can lean into them as you explore new opportunities. Ask friends, what are my strengths? What am I good at? Notice what you've been thanked for. Was it for being a good listener, a motivator, a good teacher? Which of your skills are most sought after when colleagues ask for your advice or support? Try this and let me know how it goes. Now, on to this week's interview. Today's guest is a serial entrepreneur and inspirational speaker with a passion for helping others build their capacity. He is CEO of a global partner marketing agency, Acceleration Partners, and the co-founder and chairman of BrandCycle. He has been recognized as a global leader in the affiliate marketing industry, receiving numerous industry and company culture awards, including Glassdoor's Employees' Choice Awards two years in a row, Ad Age's Best Place to Work, Fortune's Best Small and Medium Workplaces three years in a row, and Boston Globe's Top Workplaces two years in a row. He's the author of the Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller, Elevate, 
the international best-selling book, Performance Partnerships, and just released Friday Forward, inspiration and motivation to help end your week stronger than it started. He's a sought-after speaker by companies and organizations around the world and is the host of the Elevate podcast. Please join me in welcoming Robert Glazer. Thanks, Robbie. Rob, thank you so much for joining us from your office in Needham. You're just around the corner from me. I'm actually in Watertown. You're in so Watertown. All right. Love having yeah. local conversations yeah. over, over the internet these days. So, you know, as you know, that this is a show about leadership and building strong networks. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Yeah, I don't, I mean, maybe I don't have the skills to lead, but uh, <laughs> I, I define leadership as sort of a combination of, I think, having a vision and then rallying people towards that vision and, and, and making the, the whole greater than the sum of the parts. I, I think those are the core aspects of, of leadership. And I guess, um, I, I guess I began to think of myself maybe as a leader when people were willing to follow me. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's always, I think that's a good sign. I think, you know, leaders hold people, managers often are put in charge of, of people and, and people don't get to choose to work for them. I think that's, that's one of the key distinctions. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love that you, you're like, well, when people started following me, it seems like when I started being a leader, well, let, let's just take this back a little bit. I mean, you're talking about leadership in the sense of, uh, you know, the sum being greater than the whole. I love, I love that sort of you know, idea um, that it's a, a pull, not a push method, right? Yeah. Like managers are pushing people to do things leaders are pulling them towards it. But I'm curious, Robert, what kind of kid were you? Like, like, did you have any leadership, you know, did, did people see that in you as a young person or did no. you see that in others? In, in, in fact, when I speak a lot in my book and my opening presentation has my like first through seventh grade report cards and they're not, the highlights are not very flattering. Um, I think I was, I, I think this is very typical. I was a creative and entrepreneurial kid and probably displayed some leadership qualities, but that stuff doesn't tend to get reinforced unless it's, you know, on the sports field or something like that, or you're the captain of a team. I think, you know, if leaders have a, oftentimes they have a vision, they are countered or the prevailing was like, what's kind of reinforced in school is conformity and doing what people want you to do and kind of, you know, not causing trouble. So, so I, I actually would argue that a lot of the things that I, you know, the skills that I use today and that have made me successful today were, were sort of repressed probably uh, early on. Did you actually have anyone you looked up to who had the kind of leadership style that you like had hoped would be more prevalent than the one that you saw? No, I don't think I really even knew what that was until I really started developing interest and a passion in, in business. And that was more uh, in college and, and my first job. I, I always thought I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I never... I never paid much attention. My dad was a lawyer and I just, I never paid much attention to um, the business world. So um, there wasn't, um, my parents worked in, my, I have two siblings, the three of us all run our own, all run our own companies. My parents each had one job for their entire career each. So it, it's very opposite of sort of what we, what we grew up in. That's so interesting that you ended up with such an entrepreneurial siblings, like not having lived in that environment, you know? Yeah, you know, things... We get the idea. I, I think, to, well, a couple of things. Things flip-flop. Uh, certainly, I think, you know, I, I find a lot of uh, people who are kids... Uh, look, the entrepreneurial 
journey is 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 a lot of roller coaster. And I, I know a lot of kids or my peers who are kids of you know business owner families. A lot of them went to careers with partner track and security because there were a lot of ups and downs when they were kids, and they remember those ups and downs. And and security is really important to them. I, the flip side was I, I think it was more that. Um, uh, my parents both worked. We were kind of, you know, the latchkey kids. I think they 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 pushed us to be independent, um, and and particularly my mom pushed us to be creative and and, and problem solving. And I, I really think it is that probably that independence that's driven our our entrepreneurialism more than anything. So interesting that in some ways, because things were more stable, and you were given that freedom to explore, like it kind of set you up. Yeah. Think, why not try? Why not try this my, whole thing? My, my parents were involved, but they both worked. They were not micromanagers of our yeah. lives like parents are today. So, you know, yeah. uh, they were at our games and stuff, but they were not involved in, in our school politics and our friend politics. And, just, you know, to, today everyone's so over. I mean, you have helicopter grandparents today who you know, get involved in their grandkids, sort of what's going on. So we just, we just learned to figure stuff out and to advocate for ourselves and, um, it, again, I, I think it's not like they were absentee. I think it was a healthy level of, of, of independence. I mean, I, I took my bike everywhere. If I wanted to get somewhere, I did it. Like, that's just how I, that's just how I <laughs> rolled as Man, a kid. I'm, I'm Gen X. I grew up the same way. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's very like, different. It's very, very hard very for us different. to watch parenting today. It's really, it's really very different than kind of Gen X parenting. Um, and the outcomes are different too. Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine my children having the level of freedom I had. It's yeah. it just feels it feels so different. It feels No, different. my daughter got a license this week, you know, and you know, just letting her drive, you like pull up and see where she is. Like it's it's just hard for us with the with the amount of available information to to want to give kids the freedom and, and things are actually safer these days. It's just more reporting of the thing of the of the bad outlier situations, I think. Yeah, yeah. So you talked about earlier you you were heading towards the lawyer as your like yeah. career destination. When did you realize that was not the ship you wanted to be sailing on? Uh, so I, I interned at law firms. I think my freshman and sophomore year in college, and I hated both experiences. So that was a pretty good uh, indicator. Yeah, for internships. Internships are awesome <laughs> yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah, that's not what I wanted to do. I also realized that. My dad's actually a real estate lawyer, and if anything, he's much more business and, and and transactional. I think I probably misunderstood. You know, every kid wants to be their dad, but I kind of misunderstood what he did. But I was fascinated by the law. Um, so actually, to this day, I love contracts, and I'm I'm good at all the legal aspects of of business. But I realized I actually liked business. I had I had a I just had a marketing mind. I that, and, and I think the more real world exposure I got for that, it, if you're someone who's good at business, you know. Who's the kid that's good at business? Probably the kid in fifth grade that was selling term papers or selling candy, doing something else that got them in trouble, right? And so it's just, you don't get a lot of positive reward of, of, of those skills early in life. And so it just, it becomes something that you don't actually know that you're good at unless you come from a family that is entrepreneurial or has a lot of businesses, which, which, which I did not. Yeah, I actually did sell candy and then I actually yeah, had a bagel. my I had first a, business. I sold now and laters. Now and laters. Yeah. I had, I sold bagel sandwiches in high school. Nice. <laughs> I evolved, it evolved. Yeah. I, but I, I haven't met a kid, again, that example, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not encouraging this, but, but any of these times you hear one of these kids who was selling term papers or doing something that was otherwise illegal in high school, had a business, they tend to be ridiculously successful uh, entrepreneurial, uh, you know, people later in life. 
Yeah, yeah. Not that we're advocating people selling terms. No, I'm not, not advocating that at all. <laughs> but um, we are advocating yeah. being entrepreneurial. And I wouldn't mind if you sold candy in school. I'm I, I, you know. absolutely. <laughs> my, my, my candy operation was actually shut. I was taking the train at 10. You know, we have the T in, in Boston. It's very low key. Like it, the green line is not a scary thing. Like it's just how everyone used it. We got around. And I was buying them, selling them to school. My grandmother found out about the operation and she gave me the choice to either shut it down or she was going to tell my mom. And, and that shutting it down was much more favorable option for me at the time. My parents actually were getting me deals on bagels. Yeah, so they're <laughs> so teaching I got, wholesale I got, pricing. Yeah. yeah, I learned a lot about wholesale pricing. Yeah. Well, what's the unit price per you know, thing you're selling? <laughs> I think everyone, some, someone asked me recently if I would wish do I want my kids to be entrepreneurs? And I said, I wouldn't really wish that on anyone who doesn't want it because it's a certain type of life and it has its pros and its cons. And in some ways it's a little bit of a disease. Um, but, but I think the entrepreneurial skill set of understanding economics, understanding, you know, creativity, how to find solutions, problems, like I, I, no matter what you go into, whether you go into, you know, uh, medical or arts or otherwise, there, there's a business aspect that you're going to need to understand. If particularly as you get to the top of your field, I have a lot of friends who've, you know, they're doctors and now they're running medical practices. And I, I always ask them, like, did they teach you like in anything in medical school about like managing a practice? Like that's, and they're like, no, we just had to figure it all out as we went along. So it's interesting. Yeah. So when you uh, left college now with the knowledge that law school was not you know, in front of you, where do you next? Uh, I got into strategy consulting, which was, which is just awesome. You know, it, it fit me well in terms of parachute into something, uh, understand it. This was right during the internet boom. And my group kind of, uh, was the telecom and media group. So we kind of inherited a lot of internet stuff that was coming in. Um, so it was great. And then I worked in venture, uh, worked, then I operated a business. Then, uh, I mean, joined, joined a team, operating team as a business and I started my own business. I just, I realized I liked high growth, uh, early stage businesses. And, and I sort of tried it from a bunch of different angles, you know, the investing, the doing, and then, um, eventually, you know, decided that, you know, while these businesses are great, they're not necessarily great places to work. And, and so I'd, I'd form a company that was really like a good place to work. And we kind of have a portfolio of these crazy high growth companies that we worked with. That way we liked the work, but we hadn't tied our career to the sort of frenetical up and down of, of, of high growth businesses. I'm really curious, Robert, about this piece. Cause in your intro, I talk about how like you have all these awards, um, you mentioned just now the, the focus on being a good place to work. And yeah. I think a lot of people give lip service to that. So how did you know, I mean, besides the awards that, that eventually came, like when did you know that you were moving in the right direction with that? Yeah. I, I, I think as we really started to see, we're kind of a little bit like bad news bears. Like if you look at our management team and the people that we brought in, they had struggled somewhere else. And we just became a place where people thrived and learned and we invested in them. And, and I think we decided that, we wanted to grow as a company because our people were growing. I think a lot of growth companies, you know, they raise money, they raise venture capital, they're losing money and they grow and just burn people. We, we were not doing that. We were investing in people and we were growing because those people were helping us uh, grow the business. And we just decided that's how we wanted to grow our business. We wanted to be a more state high growth, but a stable place, a place that focused on culture and, 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 I've always just been on what's sustainable, like what will work today and work tomorrow, not like how fast can we drive through the bus through something today and then it all comes crashing down tomorrow. 
I'm so curious though, why people don't do that? Because what you just described sounds sane and practical and sustainable. I, I, I think it's ego. I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not against the venture backed, you know, company route. And clearly it's created a lot of great companies, but, but there's some just celebration of, you know, it, it does seem crazy that people celebrate raising money. Like no one, you haven't accomplished anything when you raise money. It's kind of like celebrating getting a bank loan. You know, if you think about private equity, like would you celebrate bar- borrowing money, um, but but we've just made, you know, that model has a 90% plus failure rate. We hear about the winners. We don't hear about the looter, losers. But I think we've just made that feel sort of more successful for people than something that is is sustainable. Um, but, I, you know, I wanted to own the business and, and control the business and, and therefore, like, profitability and things, sustainability become, you know, important if you're not building a business to sell or take public and, you know, probably it's more to sell these days because the, the, the reality of, you know, formation of public is, is it's gotta be one tenth of 1% or something that's just yeah. minuscule at this point. Might as well just buy a lottery ticket at that yeah. point. <laughs> right. I, right. There's a lot of analogies. I, I think the base camp guys, the 37 signal guys, they, uh, DHH, one of the founders gave a speech years ago on sort of, you know, that, 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 people chasing some of the Facebook and Amazon, there's one a decade, kind of like there's one Michael Jordan or one LeBron James a decade. And, you know, other people should probably stay in school. And and their version of stay in school was make your business sustainable and profitable because, you know, those, those big winners that you see are are far more the exception than the rule. And, And it drags a lot of people into that, into that game. Versus like, if you find a way to run a sustainable, profitable business, you will always be around. It won't be about, did you raise the next round of funding? Yeah. One of the things I've heard over the years is like, you know, build your business as if you're ready to sell your business. Yeah. Because then you'll put things in place that you may not have done otherwise. Even if you stay in the business for the next two decades, it will be, you know, more thoughtfully structured. Is that kind of what you're you're talking about? Yeah, I, I think it, so there's a couple like counterintuitive things uh, because you could, you could take it either way. So the, the first is there's businesses that are just built to sell. Um, and that is more of, uh, you know, pumping revenue dramatically, having a product, maybe losing a lot of money like that. That's not, that's not the sustainable built to sell. I think that the advice that like, you know, think about, setting up your business to make it sellable. So, so there are almost two extremes of that, right? On the venture side, there's built to sell, which is it's not built to be sustainable. And that's more of a financial thing because you tend to be spending a ton of money on sales and marketing, right? And losing money. On the flip side of sort of the founder-led businesses, oftentimes they're not built to sell because they're just too wrapped around the founder. And, and in that case, I actually think you do want to make it sellable by making it not about you, by having you know a head of sales, by having a finance person, by having systems and processes, not have it wholly reliant on you. It's two different. It's two different sides, but totally a different coin. Uh, almost um, different sides of a different coin, right? The what, what, those businesses are built to sell. That's one extreme. Uh, they probably should be built for a little more sustainability. And then on the flip side, the businesses that, that you know, are, are, are sort of built around the founder that probably couldn't be sold, I think they'd actually be better businesses if they got themselves less or being a, about the founder and more about 
you know, the, the business and some intellectual property and some systems and some processes. Yeah, that's interesting how they are these extremes that people get into and the founderitis uh, syndrome is real. Uh, yeah. You know, it's hard, hard for everyone to grow. I try to, I try to get rid of everything that I'm doing these days. Once you start, it's the opposite. Once you start giving up control, you're like, well, I don't need to do that and I don't need to do that. Versus, I, I mean, it was hard. I remember I, I thought I would never be able to trust anyone with the finances or the books, but eventually you just, you know, you're running yourself into the ground playing, playing all these roles. What was the most challenging thing about growing outside of your own sort of capacity? I, I think you're giving up the baby and, and, and trust. And um, I think for a lot of people, look, if, if you start a business, um, I give, I mean, you know, Jeff, Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, to go from starting to a public company CEO, that's like 10 levels. Like in theory, that company probably could have had five or 10 leaders across that thing. So their willingness to reinvent themselves, learn what they need to do, qualify for your new job every year. I mean, that, the, the learning ability, it's hard to underestimate how hard that is and how, how rare that is. Most people don't like all those different phases, right? They're a late stage person or they're a mid-stage person and there's an early stage person. So you got to figure out if you want it. Like I, I felt very driven for a long time to, quali- be, to learn, to be qualified, to be the CEO of our business every time we doubled. Um, so you have to ask yourself, is that what you want? And then, and then if you want it, like are you willing to actually do what's required? Like, because success in my business eight years ago meant running sales and marketing and finance and working myself to the bone. That what success means now is leading the business as a 170 person global company is, is night and day different. If I was doing the same thing at whatever, I, someone would have fired me a long time ago. Yeah. It's really interesting to think about how you have to qualify every year for the job you have as it grows. As it grows, yeah. I mean, if if you grow about 30-something percent a year, you'll be doubling just over every two years. And and, and there's there's quotes that a lot of our coaches use that said, every time you double the business, you break probably half your people and half your processes. And and I think that's pretty true. (laughs) That in itself sounds very challenging. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of supports did you put in place to help you make this shift? It sounds like some of it was mindset as well as like material things you had to learn. Yeah, I think it's mindset. And then it was kind of going function by function and and removing myself and finding the right leadership and then setting up the systems. One of the things when you shift to delegation, I think a lot of people particularly haven't done it before. You know, I I hire Robbie, Robbie comes in, I'm so excited. I'm like, go do this. Robbie screws up everything, you know, and then I come back with, this is why I can't trust people. This is why I can't delegate. And what I didn't realize was it was going to take twice as much work to work with you for three months, right? I can't just have you come in and dump everything and think you're going to know how to do it. And I'm also holding a standard of that you're going to do it exactly how I want it done, which is an impossible standard. I always say, if you can get 85% how you wanted it without you being involved, then, then that's a win. So I think you learn to find the right people and then understand that it's twice as much work up front to get that person or team kind of going. And, and, and now, because now you have two people in every call because I'm trying to train them, right? I don't want to throw them on the calls and me not on it. And I don't want to be on it and not have them. So it's just double the work for a while. But look, we went through that kind of system by system from, from uh, you know, first was kind of the finance because that's probably the first thing, like, while I'm good at it, like sending the invoices and stuff, you know, that was harder than marketing. I'm obviously very involved in marketing, but we sort of built out a team there and take that off of me. And then so marketing generated more sales. We had a lot of inbound sales. Myself and our president were just 
having all those conversations and we said, look, this isn't sustainable. I'm the, you're the president, I'm the CEO. And we're, even though we're getting inbound, we're the ones talking with everyone. So that became the impetus then to sort of pick a sales leader and start to build that team. And we just did that with finance again, now that we're a lot bigger, kind of bringing in a CFO, totally different, you know, level of financial capability. So it's kind of like you attack an area and you decide how to build it and make it not about you, but make sure that that person understands your goals and your values and, you know, directionally what you're looking for from that function. One of the struggles I see, so I'm a relationship-based business strategist. So I coach people both privately and for a company who are, you know, um, mostly solopreneurs or maybe like have a yeah. couple of employees. And when they're thinking about their first couple of hires, they're usually thinking really small. Like, you know, for them, like getting a VA to work 12 hours like yeah. a month. And, I, and at some point I'm like, when are you going to hire a COO? And they go, what? And yeah. I'm like, you know, that that's your hire. And they're like, no, I can't, I can't, I can't afford that. You know, then I'd actually be in charge of someone's livelihood. You know, like the, the VA has like eight other clients, you know? So how, like you just described some like high level hires as, as these, how you yeah. expanded, how you got things off your plate. Did someone coach you into that? Cause I feel like it's not the instinct that most people have. Um, I, I was in a lot of peer groups. I think it became very clear to me what the playbook for success was, right? And what I was going to have to do. And so, you know, I had to find the person in that area that I felt that was better than I am. And they should be, right? Like, if I'm better at finance than our CFO, then unless I grew up as a CFO, then I've got a problem. And if I, if I was a CFO, then I probably shouldn't hire a CFO because then the person's never going to, you know, meet my, meet my <laughs> standards. Um, so I, I, it just was clear to me that that's what was required. Um, and, and so I shift my mindset. If what you want is to control everything and be a control freak, then, then you, that's fine. But that determines the organization that you will build. I think I was pretty clear that I wanted to, um, you know, build an organization that would grow, that would do a lot of things that would not be about me. And that, uh, therefore, I didn't have to work uh, at it for the rest of my life. So um, I, I, I kind of knew what I wanted. And, and then you talk to smart people and you understand that that is the way, <laughs> that, is the way that you get there. So I'd love to explore some of this, the, the peer groups you were talking about, because yeah. the, the through line of this whole conversation in some ways is, is networking as well and the relationships yeah. you've built. Were you part of pure masterminds? Was it more informal than that? Yeah, I was part of uh, EO, now uh, Entrepreneurs Organization, you know, has a strong form component, YPO. I've also been in some, I'm in some great kind of mastermind, both informal and informal mastermind groups. Uh, and, you know, I just, you get in those right groups and it's kind of like magic and you hear, you hear the stories and you hear enough of the stuff and, and you're like, I know, I know what's going on. You know, I, I, you're like, I get it. So it's always, it's always fun in those groups. To, you're kind of in like almost a mentor sandwich, right? There's usually people with bigger business than you, you, and there's people that can learn from you, but you're all kind of helping each other. And so I, a lot of people should not be CEO. They call themselves founder, president, and CEO of their four-person company. I mean, that's just ego, if not anything, right? I, I actually never called myself CEO until two years ago when we were a you know, $15 million global company and we had managing directors. I was managing director and we had managing directors in other regions and they were literally like title confusion, like, well, you're a managing director, then you have a managing director in Europe. So, but actually you can be CEO. I mean, the, 
the CEO's job, in my point, is to lead an executive team. And so if you don't have an executive team and you're giving yourself the CEO title it, and the president title and the founder title, it, let's just call it what it is. It's just, it's just ego driven <laughs> because you, how can you be the chief executive officer if, if, if you're the only executive um, on the team? And, and I think a lot of thing a lot of founders need to figure out is, again, they tend to come from a discipline. Like I came from marketing, people come from finance, they come from sales. Is that the job they want or they do really want the CEO job? A lot of what that COO gives them is someone running the business and doing the stuff that needs to be done so that they could do what they want to do. Patrick Lencioni, you know, one of the best leadership thinkers, he just wrote this book called The Motive and it's a parable and it's about kind of like what a CEO actually has to do and what's your motive. And I think most people's motive for wanting to be CEO is wrong. And what the guy realizes, I don't give it away in this book, but you know, he's a sales guy who's risen to the sort of top. And a lot of those people want to sell and the marketing people want to market. And, and I think if they can be honest with themselves around, I don't want the CEO role. I want to do this piece that I love, or I want to do the founder role and be the idea guy. I need a COO or I need a president or I need a CEO. Um, that They would be better off and their businesses would be better off. But, but there's a big ego component to this. I've had the, the opportunity to talk to people who were the second in in like the line yeah. of authority for a company that grew and grew and grew and they were never the entrepreneur like they yeah. did not want to be the entrepreneur but they loved their role they loved being yeah. the coo or the you know vp of in, internal affairs or whatever they yeah. called themselves because on the trains on the trains. That's, that's what that's they that. loved and you know they found someone early on in their career and they hooked themselves on to that person yeah. and they're like i get a salary you know, I support what they're doing, but they're out there creating amazing ideas and all these things are happening. Right. And they like different things. Like I always yeah. say, our president runs the day-to-day -day business. I'm working on next year's business. And if you look through history, like the Disney brothers and even this is really what Tim Cook and Steve Jobs had at Apple. I mean, there's usually a, a key operator aligned with a visionary so that you have cool new products, but that your supply chain actually like works to produce those products, Right. Um, and, and, you know, I don't, I don't know who's, you know, supporting Elon Musk's logistics, but, you know, clearly he's a brilliant visionary. Brilliant visionaries usually are not good at managing or are bored by the day-to-day -day details of the business. Yeah, that's an interesting point as to who is, who is the person behind the scenes or people probably. Probably people, yeah. Because he's got a lot of projects in the air. Yeah. He's not staring at spreadsheets probably. Like in his no, right. When, has, when have they gotten into trouble? They have not, never gotten into trouble by not having compelling products or future. Like their biggest problems the last couple of years was like basic car manufacturing, right? Of, of meeting deadlines and targets and rolling and hiring car guys and car women to, to come in and solve that problem for them. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of people that you've known all these years and as you've developed your own business, I imagine you've met just like hundreds, if not thousands of people. And as you think of your network, you've got sort of your inner yeah. core people and like the next sort of layers out, the second and third sort of tiers maybe. How do you nurture and sustain these connections, particularly the, the folks that you don't have a reason to talk to all the time, but the people maybe you see once a year at a conference or you worked with five years ago or just people that you enjoyed I meeting? Yeah, I mean, I actually keep a spreadsheet. Uh, someone recommended this years ago, Vern Harnish. I almost have a tiered spreadsheet of, you know, and I go through it as part of my weekly routine and morning routine. And just this morning, I had someone on this, but I'm like, oh, I haven't reached out to that person in a while. I sent them a note, get them a copy of my book. 
So I think I'm trying to intentional. There's some people I don't talk to that often, but, but I'm, you know, there's some that get caught in the various groups. And then there's others that I just, I just believe whatever you kind of track and measure gets your, your attention. And this sheet's not about, there's no like efficacy score or whatever. It's just sort of like reminding me who's kind of in my core universe, who's next out, who I want to stay in touch with because I enjoy their company and time and thinking and other stuff I want to, I want to do with them. So it forces them to be top of mind. So what's the, what is the action that has to happen before someone even gets on your list? You know, there's a little bit of like the R and D column where we're, we're, we're in the, you know, honeymoon phase, but I, I really like associating people with natural givers. Like my style is to, is to make five introductions for someone or do 10 things for them before I would even, even if I did ask them, you know, for something I don't, or it's not a quick pro quo. I'm just saying later, if I needed their help, I've, I've already done that. So I, I really like, uh, I'm in one group where they are just all about helping each other. Like, so I really try to avoid the people who just, you know, come around when they need something. Uh, it just never, you know, I, I haven't had a job in 15 years and these people reach out all the time. Hey, I'm, yeah, and this is someone I don't know well. Now, my brother and my brother-in-law wants to sit down and talk about their career and, you know, jobs and who's good hiring out there. And I'm like, look, that kind of sounds like the work that you need to do. Uh, I'm not, you know, you know, Robbie, you and I haven't talked for eight years and you're like, I'm looking for a VP finance job. I'd love to sit down with you, get some ideas. You know, I'm like, so I'm not really interested in, in, in being a recruiter or a headhunter. And I say that directly because again, it's not, I don't even know who's hiring for, for now. Now here's, here's what I would do in this situation. Here's what I did yesterday. I said to a friend, Hey, uh, Hey Todd. Uh, and, and I, and I've done a lot for Todd over the years. I just, I saw you were on these three podcasts. Um, I'm actually getting ready to launch my book. These are three of the ones that I wanted to, to be on. I'd love your help. If you're comfortable making an intro to the host, here's the email template for each one that you could just forward along if you're comfortable and let me know, right? So go to the connection. How do I make it as easy and light a list as possible? I'm not asking him to do my, you know, my job for me. And so that's when I, when I reach out to my network for something, I make it as easy as possible for them. I connect the request, obviously, you know, I, what I don't say is cause Todd's a super busy best-selling author. Uh, all I had to do was Google, his name plus podcast, see which one he was on, match it up on my list and make that thing. What I didn't say is, Hey Todd, like I'm, 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 uh, I'm going to release a book. I'd love, can you spend an hour with me and then let's go through podcast lists and tell me like who would be a good podcast. Like that's not what he wants to do. He's a top performance coach. Um, so, so I, I, I reached in, I did the work, I had a specific ask and I did pretty much all the lifting I could do for him just to hit send on it. And then he gets to feel good that he, yeah easily met that request yeah. and he helped you and that makes him feel happy that he helped you. Yeah. So I, I, I yeah, I think you, you should not be going to your network when you, when you need something, you should stay away from the people who are very, very transactional. Um, and yeah, I mean, my three kind of core rules of, of, of networking are, I just said one of them, I'm probably going to forget one of them, but one is do the heavy lifting, right? When you have an ask kind of do the heavy lifting. Oh, I, now I remember all three. Two is, um, when you, and these are, these are really simple, double, double, uh, double opt-in intros, right? Make sure both people want to connect with each other. Sometimes you are trying to get a favor by one by bothering the other. And that doesn't, you know, really help them, you know, sticking someone on them that wants to sell them something is not, doesn't win you any favors. And then my third cool, 
core rule of networking is when someone makes one of those mutual intros, you respond with, you, if you introduce me, you know, Robbie to Steve, I respond with, thanks, Robbie, BCC. Great to meet you, Steve. Because I have been on 25 lunch emails about what time they're going to meet and where they're going to meet. I'm like, guys, like, you're punishing me for making this intro. Like, stop copying me on these notes. Robert, I just got to interrupt, interrupt here just to say I have to underscore that last point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, definitely the double in, the double intros are so important right? because one is like, are it keeps they you honest? Free? Because yeah. you so you might make an intro for the wrong reason, right? Like, yeah. I, I th- there's a guy that I want to help who doesn't qualify for your show, so I introduce you to your show, and now you're like, now I got to say no to this guy who you just set me up with, you know, and and you're doing it for the wrong reasons, right? And I've also had reached out to people who are like, it would be great for them to connect, but they're in the middle of a book tour, so yeah. like right now is not a good time. And I'd rather be the one who says, you know, Hey, actually it's not a great time, but can you ping me again in a month and I'll make the intro happen. You know, And then make sure that it's mutual gain. Like, let's say I, I have a, I do have a, like, you know, a good friend who's a, you know, rock star author and who's launching a book. And I know about networking, right. Keith Ferrazzi, right. Who I was talking to yesterday. And, and, and I, and and I know you have a podcast about networking, right. And so I'm like, I'm going to introduce you. That's a pretty good, you know, outcome. If the other friend sells editing tools to podcasting, right. And, and I introduce them to you, like, this is where I think a lot of people, and you're like, dude, you just put a sales guy on me. Like <laughs> now you, now you're more angry at me. Right. So I, 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 that's where the double, the double opt-in stops you from, from, you know, it, I don't do it in all the cases because some of the cases like this is just a match made in heaven. This is peanut butter and jelly and there's no risk and you're both going to be happy. But, but I, 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 there's nothing worse than being introduced to someone who you're then now forced to just flat out be like, I don't need that or want that. And then the second piece of that was when you reply, BCC, yeah. please, say, please, I always say yeah. BCC to respect your inbox. And then that way I'm not on the rest yeah. of the thread. They should teach this somewhere. Like I do it all the time. And I've taught people like I've taught you, people. And, and even if they, <laughs> here's what, if they BCC the person, if they're good, I'll BCC them again, just to let them know I responded and thank them. Um, but then what, cause what happens is those two people then talk, then they talk about get together. Then they try to schedule lunch. Then they bring their EAs in. And suddenly you made an intro and you're on these emails 10 strings later and it just makes you angry you ever, you ever made the intro. <laughs> um, the other thing I would say is circling back, like people who don't tell you that they made the connection totally and something agree. came yeah. out of it. Also, that's how it happened to me too. I find out that, uh, you know, uh, I introduced that guy and, you know, he becomes your book agent and you made a million dollars and not only, you know, you didn't thank me, you didn't tell me or otherwise. So yeah, I think it's really important to, to thank people and close the loop. One time I got a guy a job and, and I heard about it from the company and not from him. So that was the last time I did anything for him. Right. And so that's the thing The people yeah. who don't close the loop, they don't realize that they're closing a door by yeah. not closing the loop. Hey, um, so I had Bob Berg, you make me think a lot about him. So Bob's been on my Good show. Good friend of mine. Yeah. Yeah. So um, by the way, Keith has not been on my show because he's been busy every time I reached out to him. So you put in a good word. I'd appreciate that. Uh, uh, Yeah. He's got a book out now. So that's always a good time. Uh, That's always a good time. I always catch people when they're writing their book. Yeah. (laughs) When they're they're launching their book, everyone's available. When they're writing their book, they're not available. I got Seth Godin on my show. People go, how did you know that? How did you get Seth? I go, well, I knew he had a book coming out and I asked him. Yeah. It's pretty easy that way. So we're kind of winding down here and I, I, um, I wanted to get a sense of kind of 
as you're as you're moving forward in your business and you're thinking about the next you know year ahead and all that, um, if we were to reconnect a year from now, and hopefully we don't wait that long, and we are celebrating all of your successes, what what accomplishments are you most looking forward to in the next twelve months? Yeah, there are a couple couple of things I'm 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 hoping to do. I think there's some stuff on the company side where we have some big goals, and then. You know, I, I would love to make my Friday Ford book a New York Times bestseller for, for a couple of reasons. One, it's a platform of positivity and motivation. And uh, if you look at the list of bestsellers in the last six months, you know, this, it's a lot of difficult topics and, and, and ex-cabinet members. And I, I just, I, 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 the notion of, of, of lifting each other up. Um, my last book made USA Today and Wall Street Journal. It's very hard as a first-time book. So that would be a big, hairy, audacious goal um, that, that we're going to try for. Um, the other one is uh, I hope to – I'm rolling out my first course. And I'm trying to – as I do sort of more teaching online, you know, there are a lot of people who then want to ask questions or it doesn't scale really well. And, and I try to avoid having a lot of one-on-one discussions repeating the same thing and concepts because it doesn't make me feel that good and it's not scalable. So that's what I use my writing for, but I'm developing my first course, which I'm launching on figuring out your core values because I ask that a lot. And I I hope by next year, I'll have a couple courses and and really just more that be able to have that impact at at scale. Um, I think, you know, that's that's something that that, that, that's sort of the win-win for me. How do I make an impact and how do I make it scalable? That's awesome. I can't wait to celebrate all of that with you. It sounds like you have a lot to look forward to. So how can people find you and follow your work? Sure. Yeah. You can find everything at Robert Glazer, G-L-A-Z-E-R.com. You can sign up for Friday Forward, my weekly newsletter, uh, podcast book. And if you go to fridayforward.com slash connect, there's kind of a quick page with a lot of the things that we've talked about on the episode today. Fantastic. We will have all those links plus to your LinkedIn, Twitter, and all your books on Amazon. Uh, at uh, ontheschmooze.com. Thanks so much for joining us, Robert. This has been a really awesome conversation. Thanks, Robert. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Robert. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 212. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as over 200 archived episodes on this Pinterest-inspired page. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. Are you a presenter who's realized it's not reasonable to manage chat and all the tech while giving your online presentation to 20 or more participants? I agree. It's a lot to manage. Organization hiring you to present should pay for your Zoom producer, someone who will manage the tech, moderate chat, and give guidance on how to increase engagement. At an in-person event, the organization would have hired the AV team, videographer, photographer, paid for the venue and catering, and had staff on site to support you. You finding and training your own Zoom producer is a value add for your clients who likely know less than you about what is needed for this role. Would you like to learn more about how to work with a Zoom producer? email me at Robbie at RobbieSamuels.com. If I get enough interest, I'll host a special masterclass to help you decide when having a Zoom producer makes sense, what criteria to use for hiring, and how to find a professional to work with. If you enjoyed this episode with Robert, please share it with your friends and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's show. Remember, subscribing is always free. Are you a fan? 
That's awesome. I'd love to read your view and Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. And we'll be interviewing another town professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.